Uh, the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, and not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, Help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. 
hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. It's great to be with you. This evening as we look at this passage, a second one just read to us, 1 Thessalonians 5, our last one in the book of Thessalonians. Um, it's been an encouragement to me as we've gone through it to, to sit under God's word in this letter, to get a window into the perhaps earliest correspondence of the Christian church. And it did them good then, thousands of years ago, and I think it's done us good as we've sat under it over the last few weeks, and I hope that it's an encouragement for you tonight. And to that end, why don't you join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you that you promise to speak to us as we sit under your word. These words, while not written to us, are for us, and so we pray that as we listen, we might do so with soft hearts, you might engage our wills and consciences and our hearts so that we might hear and heed and so by your Spirit be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of today's sermon is A Deeper Wokeness. Wokeness, if you look it up in the dictionary, Urban Dictionary, that one is, I didn't know it existed, but it does. A state of being aware, you've woken up, especially of social problems such as racism and inequality. The term's often used in a pejorative sense to describe someone else who has woken up to certain realities. The testimony that would usually describe someone as woken up is an experience of being enlightened. They've come to some revelation. It's a journey from blindness to sight. Justin put in his email to us this week, I was blind to my social privilege, but now I see. A change has happened and I see the world differently. I've woken up. I have new moral responsibilities and there's a certain urgency to live differently. Now, whatever one's views are on a host of social issues in our wider culture, it's interesting language. And actually, in terms of tonight's passage, it's actually quite helpful language. Paul uses similar language in verse 6, if you see that. He says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. An event has happened in the gospel where we have 
woken up. The first reading, Isaiah, Justin just pointed out, and he says that's a kind of an awakening moment as the prophet Isaiah beholds that the, the glory of God, he's woken up to both the extent of his own sin, but then to the forgiveness that's his and the commission that he's given. And in a similar sense, in the gospel, we have, have woken up. The famous hymn writer, speaking of this in Amazing Grace, we once were lost, but now are found. We were blind, but we've woken up. Now we see. And the gospel is the thing that has woken us up. The news that Jesus, God's Messiah, has come to defeat the enemy of sin and death, and through his death, resurrection, and ascension, those who trust in him, those who are raised to new life in him, have woken up to a new reality. And last week we, we saw that that means that when Jesus comes again, as he's promised, as judge, those trusting in him aren't destined for wrath, to sit under his judgment, but because they are in Christ, they will be taken to be with him. Beautiful language, isn't it? That we'll be taken to be with him. But Paul this week says we need to be those who stay awake. And that's what we're looking at today. St. Irenaeus, early theologian, is attributed to saying the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. Well, we could take those words, or St. Paul could, and say the glory of God is man fully awake. So two questions we're going to look at tonight. What does it mean to be fully awake? And secondly, what might distract us from being fully awake? Well, firstly, what does it mean to be fully awake? As I was preparing this, it, I was trying to think, what's, how do I structure this together in a way that's going to be helpful for us and particularly at the tail end of this passage it just seems to be this kind of quick from the hip you know different commands and um, ways in which he's pastorally addressing things and is there rhyme and reason to it and I think there is because it flows from this first part that we look at in verses 1 to 11 and just to orient you again this letter was written to this young church that Paul had planted and had, because of persecution, had to leave abruptly. And he's anxious about them, and so he's writing to them. And one of the main themes of this letter, which we looked at last week, was the subject of Jesus' return. Jesus had promised that he was coming again. And last week, it focused on that. Believers who were in that community feared what that meant for those who had died, potentially already. But Paul responds to them that they, they need not grieve without hope. They grieve, yes, death is an enemy, but not without hope like the rest of mankind because those who are asleep in Christ will be raised with him. So he focuses on the dead last week, and this week then he focuses on those who are living but in both situations, Jesus' coming shapes what one thinks about those two topics. And so in this first section, Paul addresses that question. What does it mean to be fully 
awake. And in the first three verses, he seems to be dealing with some of the questions that they may have had. It seems that they may have had questions about timing. When is Jesus returning? But Paul here focuses not so much on when, but that Jesus is coming back. Drawing on Jesus' teaching, verse 2, he says, You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They can be sure that Jesus is coming, they just don't know when he's coming. Or they can be certain that he will come, but he'll come like a thief in the night. We used to um, go on a holiday when we lived in the UK, and houses in the UK always have their letterboxes in the front door. So you're, it's like in Harry Potter, I think, you know, the, the mail shoots through the door and it comes through. And one evening we were staying in a friend's house and uh, we were staying in their house while they were away and all the, door, the, the letterboxes have little hinges and doors just to keep the draft out. And I heard a squeak in the letterbox. And so I went in, into the, the front foyer and sure enough there was a there was a hand through the letterbox, kind of handling the lock. And so I flicked the light on, and, and quickly the hand exited, and a shadow fleed up the street, as you can imagine. A thief. He wasn't expecting someone to be expecting him. But it's an interesting... I have always thought, you know, afterwards, after the event, you're always thinking, well, what could have I done, actually? You know, shaking his hand, giving it a little tickle or something like that. It would have been much more fun. But Jesus, and here Paul is saying that Jesus' return is like a thief in the evening. And the point of that is that we should be those who are ready because we don't know when that moment will be. And he goes on to describe what it means to be ready, to be fully awake. He goes on to describe it in two ways. Firstly, he describes it as those who live in the day and not as of the night. And secondly, as those putting on clothing. We are to be awake. But the reality is, it's hard work to stay awake. Theologian Kevin Van Hoover says, we're sleepwalking our way through life. Sometimes we're asleep at the wheel of existence, only semi-conscious of the eternal, those things that are truly solid and bear the weight of glory. And so perhaps initially, the thing we need to ask ourselves tonight is, are you awake to God in the gospel? Is it time to wake up? Are you ready for his return. This might be Jesus waking you tonight from your slumber. But Paul goes on to address what it looks like to be fully awake. In the first metaphor, as we said, he contrasts night and day and behaviours associated with the night and those of the day. And his point is that those who have woken up, they're in the day, they should live as those of the day. Verse 6, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. We are to be ready, vigilant, awake, aware, sober. And secondly, the image is of putting on clothing. 
It's interesting, isn't it? What do you do when you get up? Well, you get dressed. So those who are awake put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Verse 8. The main point here is not to pass the meaning of each of these items, but rather as those who are awake, we, we clothe ourselves in Christ, put on or walk in ways fitting for the day in faith, hope and love. And the reason for this, we see, is in verses 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. To be fully awake is to be vigilant. It's to be aware, ready, sober, waiting, because we don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know that he will. Well, secondly then, and this leads us to our second point, how do we remain awake? Throughout the letter, Paul is anxious to hear how the church is doing. Likely this church was experiencing opposition, persecution as he had, And so his desire is to see this church established, faithful, awake. But there are many things, aren't there, that can distract, that can tempt you to nod off. And here lies the challenge. As those who have been awakened, how can we stay awake? C.S. Lewis wrote to his friend, the real labour is to remember, to attend to the presence of God, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. Well, what will stop us from being awake? Our youngest daughter, Daphne May, just turned three, and we're in the process of trying to eliminate her afternoon nap. We're not against sleep, we just like it in the evening. If she has a nap, she likes to party. And so we've developed all these series of strategies in order to keep her awake. So we can see her nodding off, we'll lift her up out of the chair, we'll tug on her toe, we'll tickle her, we will try and distract her with any other kind of other activity so that, you know, she sleeps in the evening so that she isn't given to sleep. Well, in this next section, Paul addresses potential sleep inducers, things that can easily mean that we can nod off through disappointment, disgruntlement, or distraction. And so if we're to be vigilant, what things can we put in place to stay awake? So we'll just go through three things, potential things which can threat our staying awake and some corresponding habits that we could put in place. Firstly, disunity and disruption, verses 12 to 15. The first threat to staying awake is is disunity. I don't know if you noticed, but in these verses, particularly the ones from 12 onwards, they're very community-oriented. See, key to thriving, key to staying awake is to be an awake community. Christ is a community of believers Church is a community of believers gathered by Christ under his word. And so one of the great threats to that is disunity. 
one of the great threats to staying awake is disunity. And so Paul addresses in these first few verses that threat. And firstly, he gives us some strategies for thinking through how we can stay awake. And firstly, it's to do with the leadership in the church. We might it seems strange, but if there's disgruntlement there, well, that can lead us to disunity and nod us off to sleep. He says in verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Paul recognises that communities are messy, and so he calls on them to acknowledge and honour those who are leading and caring for others in that community, particularly those with the responsibility of leadership. Because if we allow disgruntlement or disruption to take place with the leadership, well, that will trickle down and we will nod off and not stay awake. And so Paul calls on them to honour those who care for you, or in ESV, who are over you. In other places in the New Testament, the role of, or the office of a pastor is, is those who care, who teach, and who correct. And Paul calls on us to honour them for their hard work because he recognises that if disgruntlement gets in, disunity can happen. But disunity can also happen amongst relationships with one another, can't it, in verses 14 and 15? It's obviously a threat, and so he tells them, live at peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that Nobody pays wrong back for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone. Paul again recognises key to staying awake is healthy relationships. We need to be vigilant with each other. And so he puts the pastoral task to everyone. We have an obligation to look out for each other, to warn each other. You see there in verse 14... In that particular context, there were some who were idle, who were sponging off others, and the church is to admonish them, to exhort them to godliness. But he also encourages them to be active in encouraging, in helping, and being patient. And finally, he encourages them to be forbearing, in verse 15, and forgiving. A threat to the church walking faithfully awake is disunity. And so Paul's remedy here is to apply the glue that holds them together, the glue of love that we read about so frequently in this letter, but also patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and being for each other. A threat to staying awake is disunity and disruption. And so Paul calls them to take the responsibility to be looking out for each other, leading each other as we admonish, encourage, help and exercise patience and forbearance. This will be like the oil in an engine, allowing all the moving parts to function smoothly. 
without too much friction and overheating. Secondly, the thing that can disrupt us from staying awake is distraction. We see that in verses 16 to 18. I'm a bit of a sucker for audible. I don't know if you listen to audiobooks yourself, but I've found my niche. I can't do novels for some strange reason. I just trail off in my mind, but productivity books are my thing. There's a guy named Cal Newport. I don't know if anyone's read any of his books, but they're great. Three titles, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and Death by Email. And they're books basically geared towards thinking about productivity and focus. And what he does is he questions a lot of the kind of widely held assumptions about how teams or work functions well. And he comes up with thinking and practices about how we can exercise good, deep work. They're fun books, I suggest them. But a common thread across all of his books is the ruthless elimination of distraction. Whether it be having multiple applications open on your, your device or computer, notifications, persistent chat rooms, lack of self-discipline, or in COVID times, the fridge nearby. All these things he's ruthless with so that they don't distract you from your focus. But he doesn't just talk about the elimination of certain things. He also has corresponding habits and practices. Pithy hacks to reinforce good, deep work. Pithy statements that you can kind of bring to mind to remember. It's an effective strategy. And Paul kind of does a similar thing here because he recognises that a distracted church or individual will be lulled into sleep. And so he calls on them to have a degree of focus, to attune themselves to God. And the way he does it is in a few pithy verses, in succinct fashion, he drills out some pithy yet profound practices. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. N.T. Wright says these are literal rules of grammar, the rhymes and memory aids which nudge the mind in the right direction. It's a nice way of putting it. To stay awake, we need to attune ourselves to God, stay focused, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks, rejoicing always. In the midst of suffering, as the church would have done, this is a call to draw upon and rest in the deep promises of the gospel. Praying continually is a recognition that we have communion with God through Christ by the Spirit, and that means that we have his ear. So prayer becomes a conversation rather than just marked by time and space. And finally, we are to give thanks in all circumstances, recognise that we're in a fathered world with much to be thankful for. These help us to have focus and not be distracted, to stay awake. Well, what's a fully awake practice that we could participate in together? We could pray together or as we meet for gathered worship, as we rejoice together, pray together, and are thankful together. The purpose is 
to help them stay awake. And finally, what will stop us from being awake? Well, it's lack of discernment. In his final exhortation, he tells them, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. It's the recognition that to be awake, we need the Spirit's help. The Spirit to apply God's Word to our lives. When it speaks about quenching the Spirit or prophecies, what is he speaking about? Well, that is the million-dollar question. And there's lots of pages in commentaries and theological textbooks about it. But it's never detached from the Word of God. We quench the Spirit when we don't read and sit under the Word of God as it's taught on Sundays or in our own reading of Scripture. But also, too, there seems to be a sense in which it's others using Christian speech and applying God's Word in particular and apt ways into people's lives. It might be, as Graham Cole speaks, about exposing the moral states of our hearts and someone bringing a word from Scripture or an encouragement that we should test against Scripture, absolutely, but listen to, recognise that it might have a place in our lives to rekindle our faith and joy in Christ. It was interesting, we just set off at 4pm, one of our members, uh, she's returning to Hong Kong, and in the interview, uh, Jen Chen asked her, you know, do you have any words to share for us? And she drew a reflection from Scripture. She'd been reading something in Luke, an observation that she'd made, and then she shared it with us. And I think in many ways that was probably like a, a prophetic function, not in a sense of telling us something about the future, but bringing an apt word to us that we can be encouraged by, that we ought to be discerning with, but God can use those to rekindle our faith and joy in Christ or perhaps correct us when we're out of line. Graham Cole offers a definition like this. He says, To quench the spirit today is to ignore the preached or read word of God that stirs consciences or to oppose ministries that reveal our lives are out of moral sync with the revealed will of God. Yet we must not be naive. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue. Not every appeal to the Holy Spirit is to be believed. Discernment matters. So Paul here in his exhortation is that believers and leaders within this community would ensure that any genuine word from the Lord was discerned by the Spirit in keeping with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Well, what's a fully awake practice that we can do in response to this? Well, we can listen to the Spirit through His Word together, whether through reading the Word or hearing it preached or someone bringing a scriptural apt word to our lives, words that bring moral reform or change lives, we should together seek discernment and wisdom from the Spirit. This will require soft hearts and attentive ears. Well, to close, Paul has called us to stay awake, 
to remain vigilant, to be aware, to be sober, to be of the day and not of the night. He's outlined what it looks like in a wakeful community. They are people who mutually care for one another, honour one another. They are people who pray and worship together. They are people who seek God's wisdom together. It's relatively simple, but wonderful. It's how we stay and remain awake. Let's attend to these together. But Paul closes with, in the end, what will keep them awake. A prayer to God for the Spirit's power to continue the good work that he had begun in them of sanctification. He prays for them, and I've titled it a, a prayer for deeper wokeness. And it's a fitting way to close our time together tonight. So let me pray these words for us. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.